God, we come before you this morning overjoyed to celebrate in your grace. God, we're going to stay in your grace very consciously and very intentionally in the next moments together. We just ask, God, that you would help us to see things we've not seen before, that you would paint pictures that would deepen our understanding of who you are, the very essence of yourself, that God, day by day, moment by moment, minute by minute, we would be experiencing the choicest of who you are, and that would then go out from us, Lord. It's the cry of our heart that we stay in a place, place of worship before you, no matter where we are. That the acts of our hands may please you, that the meditations of our heart would be full of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, go ahead and turn to someone next to you before you sit in lieu of this last week. You maybe already did this once, I don't know, but it's worth doing it again. And say to that person, you're a survivor. <laughs> Barely. I'm going to give you just a couple of statistics. They're not long, but they'll help illustrate the point. We had um, a good crowd last night of adults. We had an enormous crowd of children last night. Do you know why? It was the first time in seven days parents were able to be without their children for an hour. That's why. It's the truth. I think parents maybe dropped their kids off and went on a date. <laughs> I do not advocate for that behavior, though I do understand it. We also had a record number, just so you know. Your kids are suffering too. We had 10. During the service, 10 parental walk of shames last night. Just to give you statistical norms, normally it's two. Your kids are losing their minds too. Now, thank goodness it has gone from negative 30 to 40s. What is that? Like 60, 70 uh, temperature change in a matter of three days. You survived. Well done. I am glad that you experienced the grace of God to get you through this last week. And that's what we're talking about today. Uh, if, if you're following along, and I so strongly encourage you to do this, if, um, if you're new and you don't know, you're just kind of visiting, we're going through this book. It's the writings of the Old Testament. It's the third in a four-part series, the books of the Bible done by NIV. We're reading that together as a church. If you don't have a copy, we still have copies. They're out at the Info Center. If you have that with you this morning, you're going to want to turn and stay on page 120, Psalm 103. If you don't have one for whatever reason and you open your, your full Bible, the Bible you brought with you, it's Psalms is right in the middle of the book. And if you have a device or an app, good gracious, I hope you can find Psalms on that, okay? And uh, as we begin, I, I want to set the tone. I want you to see what's actually happening in Psalm 103. We're, we're in a series called The Art of Living. 
And every topic we talk about is good, where, where our desire is that that particular weekend's theme would increase our capacity as followers of Jesus to live well, to live the way he intended, to show a different kind of life, a life full of grace, a life full of truth to our world. And so this weekend is the art of grace. This particular psalm is an interesting psalm because you've been, if you've been reading along, You've read 102 Psalms and you get to this one and you've heard King David, the greatest king that Israel ever knew. You, 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 you've heard him describe uh, his animosity towards his enemies and his, his desire that God would come in and bury his enemies and grind their bones and smash their faces and kind of some violent metaphors. And what that actually tells us is important to understand. In this Psalm, the syntax, as you look at what David is saying, demonstrates to us that King David is in the twilight years of his life when he wrote this psalm. That's very important to understand. Here's why. Because as a, a, a young, battle, battling king, a warrior king, he, he, um, he, he, he accomplished feats of renowned strength. He did amazing things. His strategic mind to bring together a loose federation of tribes and create the nation of Israel to instill value and strength and power in the monarchy that Saul had sort of struggled and it was just, it wasn't working well for Saul. David has done things in his experience that in some ways are very other than what he shares with us about God in Psalm 103. And I think that's very specific to his age and his experience now as a sage. I think he's learned things through his life, walking with God, loving God, talking with God, that he has learned things about God that he absolutely did not know or understand in his younger years. And so saying... We get the privilege as the inheritors. See, we are the spiritual great, 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 times, I don't know, 2,000 years. Offspring of David, all right? We are his children, his grandchildren spiritually because Jesus came through the line of David. So we can literally look to great-grandfather David in this psalm. And I want to do that. I want to look at where this might have happened and where he would have communicated this psalm that he wrote, probably in an intimate context, to his family, to his children, to his great-grandchildren. Let's say he's sitting in front of his fireplace because his body now is old and wizened. Let, let's, let's say he's holding on to his of hands that used to hold a sword are now hanging on to his lyre or his harp, his instruments that he can't play anymore because his knuckles are so scarred and so arthritic that he just holds on to it because of its precious meaning to his life. Imagine that he's covered in a fur blanket of one of the lions that he killed in his younger years. And if you will, this is our privileged position to get to come to him and to, and to get to sit at his knee and to get to scoot up to Grandfather David and to hang on the words of his life experience and to say, speak to us 
of this God that in our context before Jesus, we don't know personally. We don't understand the way you have been able to get to know him through the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, through incredible triumph and devastating destruction and loss. Tell us, tell us, David, who is this God? That is the position that I want us to have going into now, as children listening to a great-great-grandfather speak of the wisdom that he has gleaned. So saying, let's begin the first five verses of Psalm 103 together. Praise the Lord, David says. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. Two things. The first is that word benefits. You can circle it, and next to that word, write, or in your notes, his grace acts it acts for us. He is a benefactor. See, the root of this Hebrew word benefits is actually that of a dealer. It does not, it, it, it does not have a uh, positive or a negative connotation. It's just you're the, that God is the dealer and we're playing five card stud and he is going to issue, he's going to deal us a hand of cards and then look at the, at the hand that he deals us. He forgives who forgives and heals and redeems and crowns and satisfies. See, right off the bat, if we're playing cards and we're all sitting around, we get five and we say, how did I get five aces? There's only four in the whole deck of cards. And you look at the dealer and you maybe get a wink from God. No, no, I will give you goodness over and over he's our benefactor we can't miss this and in the acts of goodness that he does for us in these in this quick succession what's the one thing we're warned not to do forget forget our contribution to the first five verses as humans is forgetfulness david is warning us don't forget Dwell here, spend time here, take a bath in the things that God will give you. And then the second thing, these first five verses, I want to take a moment and unpack this, is who redeems your life from the pit. Three times, who, 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 a very personal pronoun, who does these things. And I want to look at a psalm. We're going to actually rewind in the psalms. You don't have to. I'm just going to read it for you. But we're, we're rewinding 15 psalms to Psalm 88. And in Psalm 88, there is this poignant description. It is a prophetic psalm forecasting the emotional and psychological estate of Jesus himself the night 
that he was arrested and tried and how he spent the night between there and his crucifixion the next day. Psalm 88 prophesies what would have been coming out of Jesus' mouth and what would have been in his mind in that moment. And we're going to read it for just a second to grapple with the idea of our need for a redeemer and what redemption actually is. So listen, and as you listen to this psalm, listen for the presence and the emotion of the pit. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with your waves. This is a description of Jesus the night he is arrested. And let's stop there. There's an actual pit that sits under Caiaphas's house, the high priest. It's four stories deep. Four basements, basement on top of basement. And you can make it down to the third on stairs. And here are the levels of torment that they would put their prisoners through. The first level is psychological interrogation, only it's not the kind of interrogation that we experience today. This interrogation would have been intended to deconstruct and decompose the very psychology of the person who's being interrogated. They would have taken Jesus to that first level. They would have sat around. They would have mocked. They would have ridiculed, they would have scorned, they would have spurned in every way everything he had to say. They would have tried to elicit some false confession of some kind of guilt, and Jesus remains silent. And then they move from that layer, they would take you down the steps to the second layer. The second layer was designed for physical torment. There are columns there in this layer under Caiaphas's house. You can go visit it today if you have $4,000 for the plane fare. And, and in that second pit, there were columns that they, would, that they would shackle the individual to, that second level, and then they would, they would heap physical torment on that individual. They would do everything they could to elicit extreme pain, continuing to break down the very soul of a person. Remember, first level is psychology, second level is body. We're gonna break them down. And then they would take them to the third level, which was really just a holding tank. And in the third level, in the middle of the floor, there is a hole that is just the right size for a human body. And they would put a rope, they would encircle the individual with a rope, and they would lower that individual into the darkest depths, 25 feet deeper. And they would leave them broken, assassinated, crushed in that pit. 
Now this description is the cry of our Lord. He's not coming out of the pit. He's not going to be saved. He's there. And here's what I want you to hear. He's there for you. See, he went into the pit. And we're there. And he unshackled us. And he took the rope off himself. And he handed the rope to us. And he said, put it around yourself. They're going to pull you up. And they're going to leave me here. That's redemption. That's our redeemer. That's our savior. It's a replacement of us in the deepest pit. I want you to hear this in these first five verses. Grace is a gift from God. We receive it is not a goal that we can achieve see we do nothing here except sit in the bowels of that pit and wait god does everything to remove the barriers to move everything out of the way every rejection every time we said with our own life and with our own pit i want to stay here i don't I don't want you. In fact, God, I want you dead. Every, every impediment that we put between ourselves and God, he removes with his grace. And he says, there's only one thing left. That's your choice. You choose me. You choose me. Grace is a gift we receive, not a goal we can achieve. As followers of Jesus, I think we fall prey to this. I think we have this tendency and we know him, to, to, to say, well, I know that I, I had to have grace to be saved, but then I think after that, I got to somehow try to earn grace. I, I somehow got to do something for God to, to, in retrospect, to make that act worth it. It's not how it works. We are in a state of grace because of who he is. And then there's a second idea of redemption. It's a short story, and I, I almost didn't tell it this week, and I almost wasn't going to because it's a whole book in the Old Testament. But it's so poignant and powerful that I want you to hear it. I'm only going to take two minutes to tell you this story. It's the book of Hosea. It's a love story. Here's what happens in the book of Hosea. God comes to Hosea, who's a pastor for Israel, and he says to Hosea, he says, Hosea, I want you to go into the streets. I want you to go down to the, to the red letter district. I want you to go down to the seedy area, and I want you to find this woman whose name is Gomer. She is an enslaved, oppressed prostitute. You're going to actually have to buy her from her pimp to bring her back. And I don't just want you to buy her and, and give her liberty. I want you to take her into your house and I want you to put her in a position of, of, prominent, of privilege and prominence. I want you to marry her. Pastor Hosea goes and he does what the Lord says and he brings her back and, and he puts her in a position of privilege as his wife sets her up in their home and, and, and almost immediately Hosea, or excuse me, Gomer begins to sin again. She, she begins to fall back into her old lifestyle. She begins whoring, sleeping around. So much so that um, the children that she bears to Hosea, he's not even sure if they're his. 
And this, this death spiral that she's on progresses until she is completely ensnared back in the lifestyle of prostitution, back under oppression, until she is a slave again. And get this, God comes to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I want you to go find Gomer and I want you to buy her again. Now this is the part where my gut starts churning. How can you do that? Hosea goes, he finds her again, and the picture is incredible for us as the book paints it. He walks into a literal sex trafficking ring where she is being bid on, and these are low bidders. She's used up now. She doesn't have what she had before. She is not capable of being what she was before. These are the dregs of even that society that are bidding on her. Low bids, and Hosea comes in. And he offers an exorbitant price for her. An enormous fee. And he buys her again. And he brings her back and reinstates her as his wife. See, that is redemption, church. And then God says to Hosea, now I want you to tell the people of Israel that they are Gomer and I am you. David, I want you to tell the people of impact that they are Gomer. And I am you. We have to have a redeemer for this grace, a replacer. In God's case, it's not just an exorbitant price. It's made of his own DNA. He came in and he said, no, take my son into that life. Take my son into that horror. Take my son into that wretchedness. And give me, give me that one. Goes on and. the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And what I want you to hear, simply this, his grace unchains us. The shackles, the pit you find yourself in, the destructive behavior, the repetitive place that you can't seem to beat, the thing about yourself that you loathe, his grace unchains us from those things. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He's actually setting up what is the Magna Carta of Israel. So now David moves out of his poetry and he includes in his communication to us, his grandchildren, in 7 through 12, the Magna Carta of God to the people of Israel. This would have been oral tradition that they were very familiar with as we're sitting at David's knee listening. Oh, oh, this I've heard before. I've heard this section because it represents what God said when he came to Israel, the Hebrews, as they're coming out of slavery and out of the oppression of Egypt, God met them. And this is, this is, in essence, his first offering of relationship 
to the people of Israel as he self-describes what he's made of. Hear this, 7 through 12. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God comes to Israel, comes to Moses and says, as my spokesperson, tell them this is what I'm made of. This is the essence of myself. In fact, in Exodus 34, he actually says, the Lord, the Lord, which is an emphatic, like to infinity, understand that this is what I'm comprised of. The essence of myself is this grace. And here, David lays out that oral tradition. He says, you can count on his ways, which are his character, his deeds, which are his actions, always being this way for us. You can depend on this when you yourself are completely independable. Listen to me. He cannot be different than he is. Therefore, we can be different because he is. God cannot be different than his essence, but because of his immutability, his permanence, his unchanging grace, we can be different because he is. That's good news, church. And so David lays that out for us, the Magna Carta of God. And then it's like, it's like David as a teacher... And David as a grandfather is kind of struggling a little bit here. Like that's a lot of, that's a lot of dense stuff to unpack. I, 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 let me give you an actual, let me try a human example. Let me try an illustration for you. So maybe, maybe you can understand all that God's grace is a little bit better if I give you a tangible foothold or a tangible handhold. So here's what he says, verses 13 through 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Now, now, circle father and compassion in 13. And right next to that, his grace parents us or ooh, pastors us. Now, here's why I shudder. The idea freaks me out a little bit. Because I know as humans that it, it, there is something that does draw us to that, to that example and that illustration. And I also know there's something in us that recoils from that example and that illustration, usually our actual experience. I don't care if you had absolutely splendid parents. I'm sure they messed up. Uh, you maybe had mediocre parents that tried hard, but you know, when you look back at your life, you're like, yeah, I don't, they, they, didn't, they didn't always fire in all cylinders. And maybe you had horrible parents. I don't know. Somewhere in there, David is saying, I want to appeal to the innate part of yourself 
that knows that a parent is supposed to be this way, is supposed to be compassionate, is supposed to love unconditionally, is supposed to live out of grace. See, God's not a reflection of our parents. He's a perfection of our parents. He, he's, he's not a reflection of your pastors, thank goodness. He's a perfection of what pastoring actually is. And so I want to I actually give you a story. I want to take David's example and I want to, I don't know, ante up here, okay? Last summer, I'm mowing. Now, mowing for me is a really special time. It's kind of sacred. How many understand? I mean, some of you, most of you not, but how many of you like mowing is a special moment? It's a moment where you get away, you got the smell of the grass, you got the smell of the diesel, you got a mixing. Some of you are like, that's ridiculous. Why are you like, yeah, I love it, I love it. And, and, and you got the quiet of the noise. You got space to think, and that's me when I'm mowing. In addition to being able to lay down beautiful pathways, that are just the right kind of flow. You know what I'm saying? You, you feeling me? I don't like being interrupted when I'm mowing. I'm, just, I'm confessing. This is confession. And I glance up as I'm making a large turn, and my, uh, my house is probably 70, 80 feet from me. No, I'm sorry, yards longer. And I notice, just in my glancing, I see my little three-year-old daughter, curl, beautiful little curls, blonde hair, blue eyes. She's got daddy at hello, I'm telling you. She's dear to me. And I notice as she's come, she's struggling and she's trying to get through the door because she's got a glass of water, like in the crook of her arm, and she's trying her best to shut the door, and she's struggling with it. She finally gets it shut. She turns, and she comes down the steps, and, and she's got to use both hands as she's walking, and the water's sloshing over the edges. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm looking, and it's 96-degree heat, remember? I know you can't remember what that's like after the last week. <laughs> but it is, and I'm sweating, and I'm hot, and, and, and suddenly my brain does that thing where realization occurs, and I'm like, oh, she's bringing me that water. And her face is beaming. I mean, it's beaming. She's so excited to do this. And even from 70 yards, I can tell that some of the contents of that water probably came from the kitty litter box. <laughs> I mean, every slosh, I'm like, what is that solid object inside what's supposed to be delightful water? No kidding, for real. And I, I, I had a crisis. I had a moment because I'm a germaphobe. <laughs> Don't like germs. And as a father, I had to decide which way I'm going to take this. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and she's coming and she, I, 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 I honestly, guys, I considered ignoring her. <laughs> like I just didn't see, you know, I just didn't see. But I didn't. I stopped the tractor and she came up to me. And sure enough, I mean both hands and even her hands had the residual effects of the sandbox that she had been playing in, which also serves as kitty litter at our house. And, uh, and, and she's got this glass and she, she offered it up to me like it was the coolest, most refreshing, cleanest water ever pulled from the earth. And I looked at it and I, and I'm human. But 
I live in a state of grace because of the grace of my Father. And I took that cup and I drank down every single glob because they weren't drops. I'm, I'm not kidding. I went in the house and I said, hey, just public service announcement. No one is ever allowed to tell me what was in that water, ever. If I don't die, I don't want to know. And if I do die, it doesn't matter. The compassion of God is something we at least get an inkling from in this idea of how we're supposed to parent or how we are parented in perfection by God. And I want you to hear that. No matter which end of the continuum you come from, as you look at the kind of parents you had and the experiences that you had. Verse 15 through 16. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Now we have, this, we have this poetic expression of our mortality. We have a poetic expression here from David uh, that God is sharing with him that I understand the frailty, I understand the fragility, I understand the mortality, I understand that they'll literally blow away in the wind after a brief period of flourishing. That as God, I know that they are forgetful. And I want you to hear this. The reason he knows is twofold. One, he created us. He formed us so he knows our formation. In Jeremiah, it says that he knew us before even the womb. He is the one who had the original DNA map before algorithms gave that to us. He knows individually and specifically how you are formed and crafted, but that's still a little bit different than the second part of why he knows. That is that he actually became like us in the person of Jesus Christ, that he became a created one so that he could not only know our formation, but he could know our experience as well. And because he knows both, he knows us gently. His knowledge of us is a gentleness. Somebody here today needs to know that God loves you, that God knows you gently. That he is fully aware of every fracture, of every fissure, of every dark sin, of every deep closet of every place that you are terrified and horrified that he may know. And he knows you gently. John 1.14 says of Jesus this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. He doesn't leave us there. Verse 17 and 18 says this, but from everlasting 
to everlasting. The Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. I think David knew from his armchair how important it was to remind us of our fragility, of our forgetfulness, and then hear of God's everlasting, steadfast, constant grace that will not ever go away or dry up or not be there for us, that we can live in this state of grace. Listen to me. We remember our sin as humans and forget God, and that is eternity lost. God forgets our sin and remembers us, and that is eternity saved. We're forgetters. He's a rememberer. And you can count on it. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with us. 19 through 22, it's the conclusion of the psalm. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Right? Now you can block that whole section out and right next to that, his grace reinstates us in shalom. Okay, and I want to I conclude by thinking of this idea of God's grace as a state of being or as, as, as a position that we are in in a particular geographic location because that is where God is. And if it is his essence, then we can live in a state of grace when we know Jesus. But it kind of works like this, okay? This is biologically true of us as people. If you live in Michigan and you experience negative thoughts 30 degree weather on a fairly regular basis, your blood actually gets thicker. Did you know we're a thick-blooded people? It's true. If you go to Florida, you are going to sweat and you are going to have to climatize to a, to a, a, a climate that is warmer and your blood actually thins. I, I, this, is, this is real. It's a real thing. I've talked to people from Florida who come up here. They wear the absolute thickest possible down coats they can find, and I've been told they still die. <laughs> Negative 30 below. See, we find ourselves in a state of grace where the temperature is a certain way, and we... we we climatize to that grace. And here's what I want us as a church to take away today. That when you follow Jesus and you dwell in a, in a position with God of grace, that puts us in right relationship to him where his kingdom is established. He rules. Our identity is right before God. It is correct before God. And that does something inside of ourselves so that we can actually give ourselves grace. 
so that the daily activities and the daily experience are covered in who God is. And then as we climatize, as we acclimate, then we are able to live out grace to the people who are around us, to the experiences that we encounter every single day. I want Impact Church. I want us as a people to be known as living in a state of grace. And I don't just want it to be here where there's warmth and there's kindness and there's love and there's compassion and there's healing and there's forgiveness. I don't want it to stay here. I want it to go into every single one of your life groups. I want people to be able to count on coming into your life group and, and being graced Right, graced with the presence of grace because of the presence, the essence of God that you are living and dwelling in. I want you to parent out of a state of grace. I want you to give compassion to your three-year-olds when they mess up. I want them to be able to see God through us because we're in right relationship and living out of reinstated grace in the presence of God. I want your marriages to have grace. I want you to live towards your spouse the way God has lived towards you. I want every part of everything we experience to see God because that's the environment. That's the place. That's the position that he has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. First Peter 2.9 says this, but you... You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Listen, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We don't just dwell in God's grace. We emanate his grace if we understand it. We ooze it to the world around us. Go ahead and stand. We're going to read Psalm 63 together as our benediction. I believe that this, of all David's psalms, this might be an outlandish claim, but I think this is the most intimate, experiential psalm of every psalm that we will read. And it is our cry back to God after understanding who He is. Read this with me. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. God, we are today gathered together to hear you, gathered together to dwell in you, gathered together to understand you better so that we, we can take you out with us, so that we can 
create shalom around us. God, I pray today that we would be able to see ourselves in that state as a toddler, holding up water, holding up the offering of the living sacrifice of our lives to you, and seeing that you look back at us approvingly, that you approve of us, that you take joy in us, that you don't see the grimy hands, but you see the very hands of your son offering our lives. That it's the only thing we can offer back is relationship to you. And so today I pray that we go out of here with delight in who you are, joy that we get to experience your grace and wonder to share that with others. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.